Well, hi, everybody. Back here with our good friend, Dr. Walter Block. Now, I guess I bought reinforcements because this is going to be a a challenging conversation, I guess, for some of you who followed me on the more sort of Trump libertarian political analysis side of things. But um, way, way back in the day when uh, uh, we both had hair, uh, I started on this journey, uh, which was on Lou Rockwell's site. My first essay was called The Stateless Society, An Examination of of Alternatives. And I, of course, having tripped over the idea of a stateless society in a debate with a co-worker once in the software field, I thought I had, uh, you know, stumbled across something truly revolutionary and unthought of before. Uh, And then, of course, I began diving into the literature and realized that uh, a large number of very smart people, Dr. Block, of course, had been there long before me. And I you know, began reading uh, some some of the uh, literature that's out there, which is really quite considerable. If you haven't imbibed it, uh, I'll put links to this in the final show notes. But, uh, you know, Dr. Block and uh, lots of other people, Murray Rothbard and uh, Mises kind of got, got in that direction fairly heavily. Uh, it's well worth checking out. It is a very shocking thing to think of, a society without a government. It just seems like crazy town. It feels like a Halloween that never ends. Uh, And I guess I wanted to get Dr. Block to talk about sort of his journey towards it and the basic arguments for it. I'll pitch in a little bit of my own. We will take um, questions from you because, listen, when you hear this idea, I don't know if it's just human nature or because we're kind of programmed this way by the powers that be, but we have like, objections, 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 can't work, can't work, can't work. Now, of course, from an anarchist perspective, if you had a truly free society without a state and people said, well, you know what we need? What we need is a concentrated group of sociopathic people to gain control of all the guns in the known universe, subjugate everyone else, and from that, paradise and peace would emerge. And if you were in a free society, you would see all of the problems in that formulation. But because we're kind of going the other direction, the objections kind of float up from our existing mindset. You know, whatever we're used to when somebody proposes a radical change, we want to push back against it. I don't mind, actually. It's a very fair thing to do because society can either go American Revolution, it can go anarchist revolution in a sort of free market sense, or it can go French Revolution and you end up with 40,000 people's head on a stick, which is pretty bad, right? So I think it's good to push back against proposed social changes. And with that having been said, you know, gather your objections. I will... Um, read them out, uh, and we'll respond to them as best we can as we go forward. But um, after that, I guess, brief intro, Dr. Block, if you could tell us and I guess the world a little bit about your journey towards it and what are to you or were for you the most compelling arguments in this direction? Um, I wasn't expecting that question, but now that you've asked it, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it. Uh, Expect the unexpected. Yes. Always fun here. Uh, I was a a friend of Bernie Sanders. We went to high school together for four years. We're on the track team together. We're sort of friendly. And I had roughly the same views as him. Ayn Rand came to Brooklyn College to speak. And I came to boo and hiss her because she favored free enterprise. And everyone knows that free enterprise, you know, it's fascist. That Everyone will die in starvation. Horrible. And uh, then they announced at the end of her 
lecture that there would be a lunch for anyone who was interested in this stuff. And I didn't get enough booing and hissing. And I came there and there was this long table. Ayn Rand was at the head of it and uh, Greenspan and Leonard Peikoff and um, uh, Nathaniel Brennan were all there. And I was relegated to the other end of the table. And I turned to my neighbor and I said, hey, socialism is the way to go. Uh, what do you say? And he said, I don't really know that much about it, but the people who do are at the other end of the table. So I went there. And I stuck my head between Ayn's and Nathan's, and I said, there's someone here who wants to debate someone on socialism and capitalism. I was maybe 19 or 20. I was a, a junior in college. Brandon, maybe 35, ran 50. And uh, I said, uh, who wants to debate me on socialism and capitalism? And, and Brandon said, I'll do it. I'll go to the other end of the table on two conditions. One, you don't allow this conversation to lapse until we settle it. And two, you read two books that I recommend. Two books, Rattler Shrugged and uh, Economics and One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. I read the books, and uh, after four or five visits to Brandon's house, to Rand's house, I was converted. I was the free enterpriser, but not an anarchist. Uh, I was a, a free enterpriser uh, like Rand. Uh, I didn't follow the rest of her, but I liked her economics, which came from Mises and Rothbard, so that was good. Then Larry Moss uh, was a fellow student of mine at Columbia, and he said, you must meet Murray Rothbard. He's an anarchist. I said, what? Anarchist? I don't want to meet an anarchist. You know, they're, they're crazy. They're, you know, uh, uh, killing people and, and all the... They, they started World War One. You what are you talking about? Right, right, right. They everything bad underarm smell is you know it's anarchism. Everything is is bad. The uh, anarchism is bad in every way. And I didn't want to meet him, but finally he and his roommate Jerry Wallace ganged up on me and said, "You must meet Murray Rothbard." And I was expecting some guy with you know like a, a rifle and a, and a, a shotgun finally, and, he, and you know uh, six foot three and, and you know muscles all over the place. And I'm trying to think of a description that's less like Murray Rothbard, but all right. We all know what Murray Rothbard looked like. It wasn't exactly like that. Close, but not exactly. And Murray converted me into anarchism in about 10 minutes. What did he do? He used uh, Henry Hazlitt's arguments. Henry Hazlitt would say, look, the reason we have pretty good shirts and pretty good shoes is if you don't have a good shirt or a good shoe, you go broke. And if you have a good shoe or a good shirt, you expand your base of operations. That's why we have a, a good economy. Well, now let's apply it to the police, army, and courts. And all of a sudden, you know, what? Apply everything that I'd known uh, from Hazlitt to, to this? And and he, he got me, and it was just 10 minutes, and, and I saw it, and then I started reading um, uh, stuff, and, and I was an anarchist. So that's how I came to it, through Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard. Now, for you, 10 minutes, an argument here or there, and of course, you and I and, and everybody else who's really arguing for foundation of human freedoms, we've sometimes spent years, sorry, that was a very long drawn out syllable there, but we spent years, years, years trying to get people to wake up to this kind of stuff. And it, it always has struck me as strange how easily sometimes it comes to say you or I or other people. And yet how, like for us, it's a slippery slope right down to the, the happy jello pit of truth for other people though it is like climbing mount everest using their teeth and have you i mean over your years have you sort of found any pattern behind any of this any kind of key that that opens the lock faster well you know i don't i can't answer your question but i'm a professor so i'm never going to shut up so i'll answer another <laughs> question and the other question is austrian economics it took me years to get there murray tried and and 
maybe it was because I was in graduate school then and I, and I thought I was going to get my PhD. I had to stick with my neoclassical stuff. I was a student of Gary Becker and um, uh, um, uh, other neoclassical people. Um, um, so it took me years to do that. And I don't know why, but, you know, anarchism was like falling off a log. Austrianism, especially this idea of the synthetic a priori where something is absolutely apodictically necessarily true and yet has something to do about the real world. I, I was brought up in, in the, you know, the idea that if it's necessarily true, it's just the tautology and you have to do empirical experiments to see if something is or a hypothesis confirmed or not. So I was wedded to that and it took me really years uh, to get there. And I don't know why here I am one person, one thing I, I got in 10 minutes or 15 minutes. The other thing took me years. Who knows? I, I'm not a psychologist. Maybe uh, only a psychologist would know that or, or a sociobiologist or somebody like that. I'm just making a note next show to talk about your mom. Okay. That's, <laughs> we can, we can, you'll obviously have to sit back a little bit for that show and we'll get there. But no, so one, but one of those is an argument from efficiency for which there is masses of economic and empirical and historical and personal evidence, right? Like the DMV versus uh, FedEx, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So one is just calling upon your irrevocable, in an undeniable personal experience of the government versus the free market. So I think that kind of clicks into place. But the other one, if it's sort of the praxeology idea that, well, hey, man, if you've got a certain amount of goods and services and you double the, um, the money supply, you are necessarily going to increase uh, the, the price of everything in terms of inflation. This sort of praxeological stuff, though, it's not something that you usually have direct experience of in the same way that you've had direct experience of working with free market versus government institutions. That could account for it in my case, but I'll bet you there are other cases where somebody got converted to Austrianism in 10 minutes and it took them years to go into anarchism. Uh, uh, people are strange. Uh, the human animal is uh, complicated. Uh, so I, I don't know of any experiences, but that would be an interesting thing to ask people. How did you come to anarchism? How did you come to Austrian economics? Was it quick? Was it slow? Was it the same for you? Uh, take a survey. That would be a very interesting um, sociological um, uh, uh, scholarly paper. Well, and there is this aspect. There are some people who are very comfortable with contradictions, ambivalence, and, and so on. And there are other people, and it is a kind of fetish. It is a kind of OCD. Who knows? It's Maybe it's a kind of autism. It's like if, if I can have a mental construct that is A to Z consistent, that to me is a kind of, like I get a thrill of dopamine. It's my heroine. Like if I can just iron out inconsistencies and end up with a sort of pure shining edifice structure of consistency, that to me, I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, scientists have the same thing where they can say, oh, what if the speed of light is constant? Or what if we put the sun at the center of the solar system and then everything just kind of clicks into place and you get this happy joy, joy juice in the brain that just kind of keeps you going down that path. And for me, I mean, I, I was with you like the, the Randian idea that, you know, you have a government that it does police, it does military, law courts, maybe some prisons, depending on how, how you work things out. And, and that's really seductive because it solves the most difficult problems returning to the armed might of the state. You kind of have this magic spell called, okay, the non-aggression principle is fine to violate for these because these are really difficult questions to answer. And when for me, I was in a debate with someone uh, about a, uh, um, how a society could handle air pollution. And I, I, I had been over a decade in the software field at this point. Now, in the software field, I think it's true of economics and software field. 
what is a software field is constantly applying logic to problems to try and make things more efficient because software is fundamentally logical. I mean, computers only do what you tell them to. And I think that training uh, as a sort of core programmer, research and developing, uh, research and developing programmer, gave me that kind of like, it's got to be consistent, it's got to be efficient. And then in this debate where I was like, well, you could, I guess you could have insurance for air pollution. And, and then it was just like, it, it, it dominoes from there. It's like, okay, well, if air pollution can be solved, because that would be under the Randian thing, that'd be under law and, and, uh, and all of that, the courts. And then it was just from there, and I got this rush. I still remember sitting in my office, and I, I jumped up like some crazy guy explaining the, the shooting of JFK, diagrams up on the wall and, and, and equations and, like, logic trees and all that. And I was like, by God, it could work, you know? And I, I had this eureka moment, and I think at that point it was like the countdown, like, you know, the, the, the sand, hourglass sand was kind of turned over, and the countdown to the end of my software career was kind of on its way because... It was just better. But you get that consistency. The non-aggression principle, do not initiate the use of force. Anarchism, uh, anarcho-capitalism, we can call it to differentiate ourselves from the warlords of Chaz. But anarcho-capitalism solves that problem. Like you have the non-aggression principle, consistent and universal, and you don't have this big castle which you've got to kind of take the river around and kind of ignore which is you know the courts and and the um the military and and uh, legal system and so on and you just have this consistent thing and it's harder to defend but it's so much more pure and i know a purity is is a very very dangerous notion when it comes to intellectual uh, we saw this of course in the 20th century you know the, the pure race and so on but purity in terms of a consistency to principle. Because if you're going to have a principle and then you just kind of break it where it gets tough, it's like, I might as well just be a socialist. <laughs> when does that have a lot easier principles than these really hellish ones? You know, it's interesting. My son had the exact opposite experience of you. Uh, he is now a computer nerd. He used the word for <laughs> But he said he It's credits, much more profitable sometimes. But, but he credits libertarian theory for helping with that. Hmm. Whereas, whereas you're the opposite. You credit... Uh, programming for helping you in in uh, our field, namely uh, libertarianism, uh, broadly conceived. So, uh, so you've talked a lot about the sort of cause and effect stuff. Where do the ethics, and I know ethics and economics sometimes can be a, a dangerous substance introduced into the same conversation, but wh where do the moral sort of moral arguments, non-initiation of force and so on, where do they sit in the mental infrastructure that you work with? Well, they're right at the core. I mean, to me, the essence of libertarianism is really two or three things, whether it's opposite sides of a coin or a three-sided triangle. One is the non-aggression principle. Keep your mitts off of other people and their property, unless you have their permission. It's okay to enter a boxing match or a voluntary sadomasochism if they agree. Uh, but other than that, keep your mitts to yourself. I mean, most people aren't going to say, oh, no, that's crazy principle. Most people would adhere, would adhere to that principle. The second basic principle of all libertarianism, uh, namely anarcho-capitalism is the only one that does it consistently, is private property rights. Uh, you're wearing a shirt. If I came over and grabbed that shirt, uh, the question is, uh, have I initiated violence against you? It all depends on who's the owner of that shirt. If you what you've initiated uh, is one hell of a show. And maybe we can do that next time. We'll be like the mud wrestling, uh, ripping off the shirts, <laughs> flexing our muscles, all that kind of stuff. 
<laughs> but the, the point is that if you stole that shirt from me yesterday, I'm just repossessing it. So we need to have a theory of property rights, which Murray Rothbard and uh, John Locke uh, started with mixing your labor with the land and you get to own it by homesteading it. And the third one, I guess, is a voluntary uh, free association. Nobody should force to associate with anyone against his will. So we rule out slavery and rape and stuff like that. And, and, and that's sort of the basic three things that all libertarians would give lip service to. However, only anarcho-capitalists, as you quite uh, properly said, would adhere to it fully, consistently, logically, whereas the, the Randians would make an exception for armies, courts, and police. Uh, Milton Friedman and Hayek would make exceptions for a few other things. Um, uh, even Mises and Ron Paul would make exceptions because they're not total anarchists. It's only we who are logically consistent, and we get this aha principle when, when, you know, when it all clicks into place, and it's just an exhilarating experience. But I, I think you're quite right that we have to distinguish ourselves from the Chaz anarchists or the um, uh, the Chomsky, um, uh, uh, Noam Chomsky is an anarchist, but he's a left-wing anarchist. It means he's a socialist anarchist. Yes, he doesn't want the government, but he wants to make a law against having money or profits or, uh, you know, uh, uh, markets or free trade or anything like that. So he's a a very strange sort of an anarchist. I've never, uh, I mean, I've even had him on the show a couple of times to discuss this, and I've never been able to penetrate this Mobius strip honeycomb of justifications around voluntary, um, coercive, <laughs> tribal, non-state anarchy and all that. I mean, that's like the, the pablum that Marx hangs out, like the little carrot at the end of the totalitarian stick. Oh, no, it's all going to, the state's going to wither away at some point. You know, do, do you have a, do you have, you know, that last step, if you could break that out a little bit, Carl, that would be fantastic. no. Just trust me, man. It's just going you know, to give you a full totalitarian state apparatus. But don't worry. It's just going to, you know, going to wither away. It's like I'm going to inject you with deadly poison. But don't worry. It's just going to diffuse in your bloodstream, I'm sure. It's like I really like that. Before we do the first part, can we get a break out of the second part? Now, I think for me it comes down to this one R, the R that really is really challenging for people, right? So, I mean, the technical term, as you know, uh, anarchism means without Rulers. And of course, everybody forgets that second R and think that means without rules. And that difference is really, really important. So I think the argument, Tim, tell me how far you go down the road with me on this, but I think the argument is pretty clear. If you have rulers, you don't have rules. Because it's whim-based. It's, you know, and even if the rulers are democratic and say, oh, well, it's the majority. Yeah, but the majority is kind of propagandized by the schools. The government is heavily susceptible to special interest pressure groups and, and uh, re-election and the media hit jobs and so on. And so when you have a state, you don't have rules. I mean, if you imagine, uh, you know, somebody appealing their whatever, they've got some problem with the tax authority or whatever, and they bring in all the books that you have to <laughs> adhere to. And, and it's like, what is it, 100, 120 books of small fine? Like, there's no rules in that. You can't, the Federal Register is over 100,000 pages of regulations on the correct temperature that you have to transport cauliflower in and all this kind of like, there's no possibility that anyone knows all of those rules and so everybody feels a little bit illegal all the time i think tom wood's got a pretty good book on this about the five felonies you commit every day or something like that and so when you have a government you don't actually have rules you'll have a lot of laws 
but the laws tend to be subjective and arbitrary, and also access to the legal system is very complicated insofar as, you know, you got a problem with someone and you want a lawsuit, okay, well, strap yourself in for a five to seven year journey that's going to cost you $200,000 and has a sort of very uncertain outcome. And I remember once uh, um, uh, getting involved in a, a lawsuit against someone who had done me significant wrong. And I was talking to the lawyer, and I said, let's just go to the full courts. And he's like, yeah, five to ten years, maybe a quarter million dollars. I'm like, really? Whoa. This is what I'm paying my taxes for, <laughs> something that is completely inaccessible to the average person. And then uh, through the discovery process, I actually found out that the people admitted that they'd done wrong. And like, boom, man, open and shut case. Let's not settle. Let's go for the maximum amount because we went for arbitration. And uh, he's like, mm, I wouldn't do that. And I'm like, well, why? They, they've admitted fault. I mean, sure. He's like, yeah, you know, they've admitted fault. But if there's one thing I've learned about in uh, uh, my many years as a lawyer, uh, you never know what's going to happen in there. And, of course, I had this idea based upon courtroom dramas and, and TV shows and so on that the law, you know, they just, hey, man, they just read the law. And, and they, they got to do that. Like, it, like they're programmed like a computer, right? And, and that's not the way the law works. And we see this with General Flynn, right? And DOJ says we want to drop the charges. And the judge is like, nope. We're just going to keep on going. It's like, how is that, you know, or the way in which, of course, we see that the law doesn't apply to, uh, say, a Clinton uh, as opposed to somebody else where it applies much more harshly, uh, like Roger Stone and so on. And so this idea that you live under a system of rules generally is only believed in by people who've never tried to use those rules to achieve some sort of justice at a personal level. And that was really quite instructive to me. And in hindsight, actually, it actually happened fairly shortly before <laughs> before I went into this, well, there, there are no rules under the current system. Because, yeah, a lawyer was basically telling me that. He says, ah, it kind of depends which side of the bed the judge gets up uh, on. And I'm like, hmm, ooh, that's uh, <laughs> it doesn't seem like a very good system. And I think it was then, I guess, mentally I started casting about for other things. But this idea that you have no rules if you don't have a government, it seems to me kind of the opposite of the truth. Like if physics were subject to committee, we wouldn't say there were any laws of physics because people would just be trying, like fat people would try and dial down gravity and, you know, um, uh, people who wanted to go scuba diving would try and dial it up or whatever and it'd just go all over the place. You'd say, well, there are no rules of physics. It just depends on the whim of the majority or the moment. And it's the same thing with rules in society. We don't have anything that we can study objectively in a sense because it all just goes through this subjective political machination. Oh, I, I agree with you enthusiastically. You said something very interesting before uh, a, a couple of minutes ago. What you said is that uh, if we started with a free society and we told people, hey, let's start up a government and, and we're going to give the Joneses uh, all the guns and, and let them decide everything and they can tax us as much as they want. People would say, you know, are you drunk? Uh, whereas if right now people say, oh, you can't have anarchy. Uh, because, you know, we'd have chaos. And, and a lot of people use uh, chaos as a synonym for anarchy. And I would say it's almost the opposite. So let me give you an example where right now we have anarchy. We have it. And, and nobody really wants to get rid of it. Where do we have anarchy? We have anarchy. Look, you and I, if we got it, the argument for a state is you and I might get into a fight. And if we got into a fight, we need somebody to you know, break us up and, and determine who is right and who is wrong. So you need a government. Well, Canada and China are in a state of anarchy with each other in the sense that there's no world government above them. Brazil and Burundi are in a state of anarchy with each other because there's no world government. Every country, and there are about 130, 150 countries, are in a state of anarchy with each other. 
And the only way to get out of it, like uh, to, between you and I, we, we need a, uh, a government to make sure we behave. Well, then we need a, a, a government between uh, you know Brazil and, and um, Spain to make sure that they behave. Well, what, what would that be? It would be the a world government. But nobody really wants a world government. Now, the U.S. is trying to become a world government. It's got, uh, I don't know, 800 military bases in 130 different countries, although Donald Trump is trying to reduce it a little bit. But, uh, but we don't have a world government. You know, I'm Jewish, and we, my people are always running from somewhere. Uh, this country is no good. We run there. That country's. If we had a world government, there'd be no place to run. Mars is not uh, habitable yet, and, and the moon, you know, so so uh, we certainly, as speaking as a Jew, I wouldn't want a world government, but even as, uh, as a non-Jew, nobody wants to have a world government. If we had a world government, and it was democratic, and by the way, uh, you talked about democracy, Hitler came into power through a democracy. Hitler did not come to power through a coup d'etat or through violence. Hitler came to power through a democracy. So, you know, just because a lot of people vote for something uh, doesn't make it right. I'm sorry, just, so, just to interrupt for those who don't know the very, very brief history, Hitler tried to gain power through a putsch and ended up in jail, which is where he wrote Mein Kampf. And he basically said, okay, forget this overthrow putsch stuff. That doesn't really work at all. The way we want to do it is legally through democracy. And that's exactly what he did. It was kind of a neck and neck race between uh, the national socialists and the international socialists, the communists. But yeah, he was like, no, no, I forget this putsch thing. It's really, really risky. But what we can do is just, you know, frog march our way up there through the democratic process. And it worked. Right. He didn't have a majority, but there were three or four or five parties and he had a plurality and he took power uh, uh, democratically. So, you know, uh, look, if we had a democratic world government, India and China, between the two of them, would pretty much run the world. And do we really want a, a world that's sort of like the Indian or the Chinese government? Uh, a lot of people don't want that. So the point is, when you say it's very hard to convince people to try something new, what we can do is try the international sphere and say, look, we have anarchy internationally. Do you really want to have a government and uh, sort of undermine that, that theory? So well, I, and of course, you end up if you do, as you know, there was the League of Nations in the 1920s, 1930s, which to me was one of the key reasons why the World War II happened, because everyone thinks the problem is being solved by some international organization. But the important thing to remember when it comes to governments is whatever wonderful thing you dream up, and excuse my French here, you have to accept that sooner or later, it's going to be populated by the worst assholes you could possibly think of. They're going to be in charge. That's an absolute given and, and guaranteed over time because, you know, sociopaths seek power. They're very manipulative and they're very glib and they're good at um, sophistry and, and uh, convincing the, the, the worst argument is the better as the old Socratic thing goes. So whatever you come up with, like, oh, let's, I tell you what, let's have, a, let's have a United Nations, which is kind of like a world government, and we're going to have a whole international commission on human rights, right? Okay, it's like countdown to Saudi Arabia and the old Libya being in charge of these things. And, you know, from that standpoint, it's like whatever you come up with, whatever you come up with, oh, let's have the government educate people because, you know, it's really important to have good civic education. It's like, okay, so then eventually the, the communists, the socialists are going to get in charge of that and they're going to teach you all about you know, pathological racism in your society, white privilege everywhere is a white supremacist and, and uh, capitalism is evil. And it's like you're going to spend half your life uh, either uh, educating children yourself or trying to undo the damage that the government indoctrination system is doing to them. And, you know, no matter what you come up with, sooner or later, and emphasis usually on sooner, it's just going to be populated by the worst possible people you can imagine. And they're going to have a huge amount of power over you. 
absolutely true. Uh, I, I, I agree with you enthusiastically. Uh, very much at the outset, you know, people say, well, wh what do you have against government? Government is a voluntary institution. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad uh, I'm glad you laugh at that, but a lot of people would say, you know, the IRS, whenever they announce, uh, you know, they say it's a voluntary uh, institution, taxes are voluntary. And, and the point is, and, and what they'll say is, look, if you join the golf club or the tennis club, you have to pay dues. So shut up and pay your taxes, because it's just like dues. And the obvious difference is that when you join the golf club or the tennis club, you joined, you agreed. And if you want to avail yourself of the golf or the tennis uh, benefits, well, you have to pay your, not taxes, but you have to pay your, your dues. Well, but the United States is not like that. I didn't, and Canada, you're in Canada. Canada is not like that. No country is like that. There was no country where they started and they all agreed. Like in the United States, there, there were 13 colonies and um, uh, there was a majority. I think nine out of the colonies agreed, but in each of the ones, it was only a majority vote. So there were people who were forced to uh, uh, join whether they wanted or not. But there's nobody who is in the golf club or the tennis club that was compelled, frog marched into it. Can you can you imagine you, you go to your mailbox one day and there's some friendly golf club down the road and they, they send you an invitation and the invitation goes something like this. Dear you, welcome to your new golf club. We will now be taking your, your uh, dues by force. If oh, you no, no, decide that you, yeah, if it's you decide that if you, if they, if you decide that you don't want to pay us, uh, we are going to send armed guards to collect. If you resist them, we will gun you down. And if you don't want to pay these dues, we're going to kick you out of the country. Uh, that would be a fairly aggressive and really difficult to maintain kind of uh, imposed um, one-sided, quote, contract. And, and this social contract is complete nonsense because it's not a contract. It's an insult to contracts to call coercive. Um, you know, it's like saying, hey, man, it's true you're a slave. But, you know, if you, th there is an underground railroad that can take you to Canada. So you're not really a slave because you can always, you know, take, take your chances and, and bolt for it in the middle of the night uh, and all of that. I mean, it's crazy. And you and I can't impose social contracts on other people. Like if I can't pay my visa bill, I can't just go to my neighbors and take money from them by force and say, hey, no, it's not theft. It's a social contract. And so when the government forcibly prevents you from enforcing any kind of social contract yourself but claims the monopoly right to do it themselves, I think that gives people a sense of just how crazy the logic of the system has become. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, let, let's just talk about the so-called civil war that they had in, um, in the U.S. in 1861. Uh, first of all, it's not a civil war. A civil war is where both sides want to run the whole country. In Russia in 1917, the Red and the White Army each wanted to run the country. That was a civil war. In 1936 in Spain, the fascists and the commies each wanted to run the Spain. That was a civil war. What the uh, South wanted to do was to secede. The South didn't want to run the North. The North wanted to run the South. And it had nothing to do with slavery because Lincoln uh, uh, very famously said, according to Tom DiLorenzo, my mentor in this, is uh, Lincoln said something like, paraphrase, if slavery will keep the union together, I'm pro-slavery. If uh, getting rid of slavery will keep the union together, um, I'll get rid of slavery. Namely, I want to keep the union together. But secession is a, a crucial part of libertarianism. It's the, the part of where we talked about free association. No one should be compelled to associate with anyone against his will. So the South wanted to secede and the North didn't want them to. But uh, I would say that um, right now there's no slavery. Uh, 
and I'm in Louisiana, and I would say if Louisiana wants to secede, they should be able to secede. The, the, the government shouldn't, uh, the national government shouldn't come in Louisiana and say, look, you're staying as part of this, whether you like it or not, we should be allowed to secede. But then I'm in New Orleans. New Orleans should be able to secede from Louisiana because, you know, the rest of those Louisianans are bums and we don't like them. But then, you know, I live in the Garden District in Louisiana and the Garden District should be able to secede. But then I live on this one block on St. Charles Avenue. This block should be able to secede from the Garden District. And I should be able to secede from that, uh, that group. So, you know, we anarchists, we really favor seven and a half billion governments, one for each of us. <laughs> and if you want to ask a girl for, out for a date, you just can't ask for a date. You have to get your foreign minister to ask her foreign <laughs> minister to get together. But the, in other words, the, another defense of, of anarchism is secession down to the individual level, because why should it be just secession down to the state or the city or the neighborhood level? Each person should be free to associate or not associate. Now, when I secede from the block and the block secedes from the neighborhood and the neighborhood from the city, it doesn't mean we can't trade with each other. It doesn't mean we can't interact with each other in a peaceful way. It doesn't mean we have to be hermits, but we wouldn't have any um, any uh, archy, uh, as you quite uh, well said, anarchy, the free the prefix an means against. So what is what is uh, anarchy against? Archie. Well, what is archie? Unjustified rule. Now, we libertarians believe in rules or, or laws or whatever, namely uh, no murder, no rape, no theft, uh, the non-aggression principle. That's our only rule or our only law and implications thereof. So I, I would say another way to convince people who are not anarchists is to look at, at, at them and say, do you really want to compel people to associate with you against their will? And hopefully the answer would be no. Well, I mean, in, in many societies, there are elders who determine how marriage works, right? Who gets married to who? And sometimes it's more coercive and sometimes it's less coercive. But of course, if the government told you who you had to get married to, uh, and uh, enforce that marriage, and you couldn't get divorced, you couldn't uh, get out of the relationship. And then people said, you know, it would be really nice if we could just choose our own marriage partners. And, and then people would say, are, are you kidding me? That would mean there'd be no families. That would mean that there would be no children. That would be the end of society as we know it. Because there's this idea, of course, as you know, if the government does something, and then the government doesn't do something, that thing won't be done. And, you know, hey, man, the government educates the children. And so if the government doesn't educate the children, the children will not be educated, which is about the same as saying slaves, you know, pick the fruits and vegetables. And so if we don't have slavery, everyone's going to starve to death because the fruits and vegetables are just going to rot in the trees and on the fields. And this idea that there is a desire for a solution in the general population. And right now, it's badly and violently performed by the state. And if you don't have a state, people will just go completely limp, you know, like Geppetto's, you know, cut puppets or something, completely limp. And nobody will try and figure out any other solutions. And you can see this right now, right now, we can see this playing out with the schools and the pandemic. People are um, not able to send their kids to school now it's been like you know i mean not counting the summer if kids were in summer school it's definitely been a couple of months so what are people doing well they're getting together and they're creating these learning pods where they hire a teacher and the teacher teaches you know eight or ten kids or whatever or they're homeschooling or they're all getting together in someone's garage and you know people want their kids to be educated and if the government doesn't provide it a better solution will occur and this idea that if it's not 
done forcefully. You know, if the government told you what job you had to have, you know, like true Soviet style, and then it suddenly was returned to the free market, would people just never work and starve to death? No, they would, they would rush in to fill uh, a real solution for the fake solution provided by the state. One of the proofs of this, or another argument in favor of this, is that uh, there's this, um, I forget the guy's name, um, uh, Rummel, R.J. Rummel wrote a book about uh, the number of deaths caused by government in the last century. And he comes up with 200 million. And this is apart from the wars that they're continually fomenting. And now people say, well, if you had anarchy, the blood and the crypts and, and the Chaz people, uh, they'd start killing people. Well, yeah, look, under anarchy, there'd still be murders. Uh, anarchy would be comprised of people like you and I who are flawed and uh, 1% of the people are murderers and, 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 and the presumption is that the private police forces would, would stop that. But people say, well, you'd have anarchy, you'd have chaos, you'd have killings in the street. Well, you have to compare how many, you know, there's this joke, the economist was asked, how is your wife? And the answer was, compare to what? Yes, there'll be deaths under anarchy because people are people and, and you know, some people are pretty vicious. But, but the gargantuan number of deaths perpetrated by government is just horrendous. And they don't even count the some 40,000 people who die on government highways. And one of my books is on why we should privatize highways. And in Canada, it's about one-tenth. About 4,000 people a year die on government roads. And then they start saying, well, the cause of it is um, speeding or a driver inattention or drunken driving. But no, no, no. Th those are just... Um, um, uh, proximate causes. The ultimate cause is the, the manager of the roads, the government isn't uh, stopping them. So uh, in this book I had um, privatizing roads, I'm making the Hazlitt point. The Hazlitt point is that if we have competition, you'll have better shirts and better shoes and better roads. We'll have competition. Uh, you know, you'll run your road one way and I'll run my road the other way. And, and I have more deaths than you. And you'll advertise that and say, look, don't go to Block's road because it's not safe. Come to my road and, and, and then I'll adopt your uh, rules of the road, you know, the speed limits or whatever it is. Uh, and then people say, well, you know, you have to have red lights. Therefore, you have to have government. Come on, you, you can't have private red lights. I mean, uh, is private enterprise incapable of making red lights? I, I believe there are some red lights in Amsterdam that don't actually <laughs> require the government, if I remember. Well, those I are remember. different kind of red lights. <laughs> <laughs> different, different. Now, okay, so um, let's let's just do it, um, if you don't mind. I got a, a, a tiny, tiny little rant in because this, this just drives me um, – it, it drives me completely crazy – this uh, the argument that that people have about this this need for compulsion at the center of society, and it has to do with responsibility, right? So you know, you're a professor, you hold your students accountable. You know, if they show up and they've been uh, you know smoking weed and listening to Dark Side of the Moon rather than studying for the test, that will be reflected in their marks. When I was a daycare uh, instructor. Uh, as as a teenager, you know, we had a class of like 30 kids uh, aged 5 to 10, and they were all responsible. You know, some five-year-old pushes another kid. We hold that kid responsible. We try to sort of bring accountability to the situation. And you see parents with two or three-year-olds holding them accountable, holding them accountable. And so we have this basic recognition that a lack of accountability is a lack of responsibility, a lack of maturity, and so on. Now, clearly in the government, like, what is the major problem? The major problem is if somebody dies on the highway, uh, nobody gets fired in the government. Nobody is personally liable. If they've done um, a bad job of fixing a pothole and some guy flips out and ends up going through a tree, 
then, uh, you know, you can't sue the guy who runs the... Like, there, there's no accountability. And the one thing that's really confusing to people, and, I, and in this I side to a large degree with the leftists, not in terms of the foundational ethics of it, but in terms of how it manifests, is, you know, corporations not part of the free market. Corporations absolutely, completely, and totally not part of the free market. Corporations were instituted by the state. And corporations are a kind of like a one-way mirror, right? You, you can pull all the profits you want out of the company, but if the company does, does something bad or illegal or wrong, then, uh, you know, you don't have to – you don't have to – you can pay for your house using profits in the corporation, but if the corporation goes haywire, does something wrong, kills people, you don't lose your house. It's a one-way thing. And corporations are these sort of legal fictions, and it wasn't the case at all. 19th century, the banking in America was pretty clear, man. If the bank – if you had a bank run, you lost your house if you were in charge of the bank. Like you, you would, and so they really sat on top of this stuff and didn't let things get too risky. But corporations are this really devious and nasty way for the sort of political and, and, and really the financial elites to gain all of the profits of collective action while exposing none of their personal assets, which are the ones that really count when it comes to the law. None of their personal assets are exposed. And the, the veil of corporatism is something set up by the state. I mean, would you want to do business with a bank if in a free society if the bank owners would lose their house if the bank went under or if they could just, you know, take a jet to Tahiti and just to chuckle away while having a Mai Tai on the beach. No, you'd want to, I'd want them to have some personal skin in the game and that's how things would be set up. I wouldn't want to be doing business with people who'd have no accountability and this lack of accountability is the one thing that, it's the one thing that would really get my goat up when it comes to this kind of stuff. You know, who is responsible for all of the deaths being caused by the lockdown? Who is responsible for coronavirus getting into the country and doing all the damage that it's done? Nobody's responsible. Nobody's accountable. Nobody's going to jail. Nobody's losing their house, at least on the state side, on the government side, uh, on China or America or England or anything like that. So to me, it's like, you know, you, you get an A no matter whether you study, no matter whether you show up. There's no progress. There's no learning. There's no risk there. And, uh, you know, the moral hazard aspect of, of the free market is really important. But it's something, of course, that everybody wants everyone else to have, but, but not themselves. Well, you know, uh, Stefan, you and I agree on only 99.9% .9 of everything. <laughs> but now you've uh, put your finger on one-tenth good, good. One of 1% where we disagree. Uh, I think that corporations can be part of the free enterprise system, not when they're protected by government with crony capitalism and bailouts and, and stuff like that. But um, uh, I think that, and, and not when they use violence against someone else, and then they should be personally responsible. But uh, me and my buddies get together and we say, look, we're going to make shoes. And uh, you want to buy shoes from us? Um, and you want to sue us for a bad shoe, you can only sue us for the amount of money that we put in our, our, our uh, homes or our cars or whatever is are not part of the, uh, the, the kitty. And now you're free to uh, deal with us or to deal with a, uh, a non-corporate form of shoemakers and uh, everything is cool. Uh, so I don't see just because, uh, and we, we're not committing fraud. We announce this very clearly. We're not liable for anything more. We each kicked in uh, 100000 and there are 10 of us, so there's a million dollars in the company. And if you sue us for something like a bad shoe, you can only get a million. You don't want to do it? Go to another shoe company. I, so I don't see why it's intrinsically uh, problematic. Yes, it's problematic when the government steps in and protects corporations. Fine, I agree with you there. But, but you're, 
maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but you're taking a position that it's necessarily incompatible with libertarianism, and I, I don't agree with that. Now, now see, here's, here's the beautiful thing, and, and we disagree on this area. Now, in a status society, only one of us can win, right? So either I get my way or Walter gets his way. But the beautiful thing about a voluntary society is this constant experimentation and constant navigation according to customer preferences, right? So Walter may want to do business with that shoe company. I may not want to do business with that shoe company. Now, I would never in a million years say that Walter is forbidden. It is verboten for him to do business with a shoe company that doesn't conform to my definition of what a corporation should be. And of course, he would extend me the same respect. And we kind of battle it out in a sense peacefully in the market place. If his corporate structure produces more innovation, people are more willing to invest because they're not so personally liable, they're willing to take more risks, and they can produce better goods over the... Then I'm like, hey, you know, that guy's... The guy on the left here, who's not often on the left, it's referred to as on the left, the guy on my left on the screen, he's totally got it. Uh, he's got it down, and I'm going to start doing business with his kind of corporations. If, on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of evasion of responsibility and people start cutting corners and bad things happen. He might say, ah, you know, this lack of accountability over and above, blah, 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 not so great. So we can both get our way. We can allow each other to have each other's preferences. We can learn from each other's preferences because of this constant innovation and experimentation. There's not one final answer where the gavel of the state comes down and say, from this time forward, at least until we get some different argument from some more powerful person, this is how it has to be. And the experimentation stops. We can both disagree in the same way that he may be a Mac guy, I may be a PC guy. That's fine. <laughs> we, you know, He can do his thing. I can do my thing. This live and let live aspect of society can only really be achieved in the absence of the state. Otherwise, if it matters a lot to us, we've got to go and try and wrestle control of the gun of the state and point it at each other to get our way. So we really do agree then. I misinterpreted you. You're not saying that intrinsically they are um, uh, incompatible with libertarianism. You're just saying that you prefer the, the non-corporate uh, style. Uh, I... I you know, I, I was ready to um, uh, get you. I was going <laughs> to I was accuse you of triggering me, and um, uh, uh, I feel unsafe now. And I'm going to try to cancel you because you disagreed with me. How dare you? But uh, unfortunately, we agree, so I can't pull that crap on you. <laughs> well, and this, so this, the analogy for for those of you. I mean, it's real easy to explain, and I'm, for those of you who know a smidge of European history, right? For like 300 years, 250, 300 years, a lot in Germany and other places too, there were these endless religious wars, right? It came out of Martin Luther putting his 94 theses on uh, the, um, the door uh, of the uh, monastery, I think, uh, no, the university. And what happened was he translated the Bible into the vernacular, so everyone got their hands on the Bible, which hitherto or formerly had been uh, fenced off by endless Latin phrases by the clergy, and nobody really understood what was going on. And so when everyone got their hands on the Bible, everyone had a different interpretation, right? You had the Lutherans, the Svengalians, the Anabaptists, the, you know, the Protestants, the, I guess the milquetoast Protestants like my background. And it, there was this endless warfare because the government ran religion. And so if you were an Anabaptist who believed in adult baptism, you wanted to make sure that people didn't get baptized as children before they could understand the religious or theological con uh, contract that they were getting involved in. If you were somebody who was opposed to Anabaptism or the Anabaptists, then you would want to make sure that adult baptism was banned by the power of the state, because otherwise people wouldn't get to heaven. And in fact, the people who were against Anabaptists would grab them and drown them in a lake as adults saying, how do you like your adult baptism now. Like, it was really ferocious. And things got unbelievably ugly. Uh, there, there's an old 
story. It's a real story about a traveler from England who was going through Germany, uh, I think in the 18th century, early 18th century. He said you could scarcely see a tree without a heretic hanging from it. I mean, things got really crazy. And the only way that Europe survived was separation of church and state, which is, hey, man, you want to have a child baptism? Go for it. You want to have an adult baptism? Go for it. This is no longer going to be legislated by the state. And if you understand that economics in terms of the trans- forced transfer of trillions of dollars is happening around the world at the point of a gun through the state, and you say separation of state and economics for the same reasons as separation of church and state is really, really important so you can have disagreements without them becoming civil conflict. And of course, you know, now that we're seeing this stuff going on in, in politics in America at the moment where you know, according to Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden should just not relinquish, like he should not accept uh, if, if Trump wins. Under no circumstances should he accept a Trump victory. It's like, man, that's, that's some pretty powder keg kind of stuff. I mean, that, that's Guy Fawkes kind of stuff. And uh, if we are free to disagree, we don't come to blows. But if there's only one forceful solution, then the most committed, which is often the most passionate slash insane, they tend to win out and everybody else either subjugates or fights back. And it's really brutal. And we are facing economically, I think, in the West, what uh, England uh, and and France and Germany and other European countries faced when the state and religion were one, which is, I mean, there's no way out of it other than mass extinction or a a, a devolution of these powers. Uh, Stefan, I have allotted one hour for this and we're almost at the end of the hour. Did you say that? Yes, yes. Let's get a couple of cues in. I appreciate okay. that. Um, so let's see what we've got here. Um, let me go back to the beginning, back to the start. Oh, actually, I did peel off a couple of them uh, earlier, so let's get those. All right. Anarchy fa- favors psychopaths. That doesn't lead to ideal economic or social conditions conditions as much as it reduces humans to a survival situation. So this is the idea of the power vacuum idea, right? So if you have um, no state, then the most innately cruel, soulless, heartless, conscienceless psychopaths will end up Genghis-style Khan, uh, sorry, Genghis Khan-style uh, running the society. And what's your thoughts about that? Well, Hayek wrote a book, uh, The Road to Serfdom, and one of the chapters was Why the Worst Get on Top, something like that. I might be paraphrasing it. And and he said it for the same reasons. You know, there are certain people that have a will to power and they, they love to ru- run other people's lives. And then there are other people like you and I who believe more in live and let live. And, and they gravitate to Washington, D.C. or Ottawa in your case. And I, I think uh, you've put your finger right or you've... Uh, Thumb on, on right on the, on the thing. They're, they're these people that are psychopaths, and and they want except for Ron Paul, and and maybe Rand Paul, and, and there are a few other exceptions. I once ran for office, and I my heart was pure. I, I ran for the New York State Assembly, and um, my motto was disassemble the assembly, <laughs> and I, I would have been a good politician. Uh, but very, very few people are. The the majority are have this will to power, and and they're very dangerous. All right, pandemic. Go. How does the free society deal with the pandemic? Oh, that's a vicious, nasty question. Uh, th- that's triggering me. Uh, <laughs> uh, th- that's a tough one because, you see, as libertarians, we really have no comparative advantage in determining just how dangerous it is. So when it first came out, uh, February and March, I, I, I took a, a sort of a, a, a 
a view, uh, uh, uncertain view. And, and, and I attacked both sides. There's some libertarians were saying, well, this is all nonsense and uh, the government shouldn't do anything. And other people were saying, oh, you know, this is like Typhoid Mary. Look, when in the Typhoid Mary case, we were justified in using violence against her, even though she had no mens rea, she had no guilt. But she was spreading typhoid uh, innocently. And what we should do is say, look, you have to stay at home or we'll put you in a nice hotel. We'll give you food. But you can't be out there uh, shifting off uh, these uh, typhoid diseases. Uh, we didn't know how serious this was. Nowadays, I mean, the whole thing is nonsense. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, they'll allow uh, people to have a Black Lives um, Matter march. And they won't allow people in church. In, in uh, Nevada, they'll allow people uh, in the gambling thing, but not in church. Uh, and they want you to have six foot di distances, but it's okay for uh, rioters. So the whole thing is nonsense as far as I'm concerned now. But initially when it came out, I was uncertain. I was sort of an agnostic on that. Uh, I, I didn't really know. And, and my attitude was, well, we, don't, we libertarians don't have to answer all questions because some questions are empirical. Is, is, um, uh, is the COVID like the typhoid? And if it is, then yes, uh, the government or somebody should use force to stop people, make them wear a mask or a six foot or whatever it is. On the other hand, if it's not, they shouldn't. And we as libert qua libertarians don't know. We don't have any uh, you know, link to God or anything like that. Immigration. Oh, that's another, boy, these are nasty, tough questions. You know, libertarians disagree on abortion. Murray Rothbard is pro-choice. Ron Paul is pro-life. You can't get two more eminent libertarians than those two, and they're 180 degrees apart. Happily, I've come along with this thing called evictionism, which solves the whole question, but we don't have time to go into that now, maybe some other time. So it's a great so, argument. Uh, people should, I'll, I'll put a link to your articles on it because it's it's a really good argument that you have about that. We will do that another time. But yeah, okay, so let's stick with the immigration the side. With, it's the same thing with, uh, with immigration. Uh, there are some people like Murray and Hans Hoppe who say, no, 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 you shouldn't have the free movement of people. And there are other people that say... Um, uh, free movement of people if, if uh, people don't cross borders, armies will, and, and, and uh, you don't need a passport, and anyone should go anywhere they damn well please, as long as uh, he's invited onto other people's property. Uh, my analysis of that in, in, in the one and a half minutes we have left is we should have open borders, except we should uh, privatize every square inch of the place. And once every square inch of the place is privatized, then there's no more open borders. Then if you want to come in, you have to get someone's permission. But if we still have parks, look, suppose somebody comes from Mars and he lands in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, whether in Canada or in, in uh, Wyoming, and he starts homesteading. Did he violate any libertarian, uh, proper libertarian law? No. Therefore, if somebody comes to him and says, you've got to get out, go back to Mars or wherever you're coming from, Africa, Asia, he's violating rights. So my analysis of that is the key crucial aspect is you don't want uh, a million or a billion Chinese or Indians or Martians coming here. Privatize every square inch, including rivers and lakes and roads and, and parks. Then we've solved the problem. So libertarian solves the problem that way. Well, and of course, uh, everybody who comes with a genuine desire and thirst for freedom to me would be very welcome. And the people who come for free stuff through the state, probably a little bit less welcome. And without the welfare state, this is an old argument going all the way back to um, 
Oh, it wasn't Hayek, um, but uh, it'll it'll come to me. But uh, it, you know, you can either have open borders or you can have the welfare state, but you can't have you can't no, have both because then people are coming for free stuff, which undermines freedom. Uh, and no. so, yeah, I, I, to me, yeah, you can't initiate the use of force to prevent to prevent people from moving. But uh, the more privatized the country is, the more that uh, there will be negotiations about. The best kind of people to to have around, and to me, that's just freedom-loving people of of all stripes and hues. So, it was Milton Friedman who said that. That's uh, the one I couldn't, you know, uh, over fifty. I, I have a few black well, spots, look, but I should I should remember that one. Two two senile idiots, the two of us, if I can speak for you. But between us, we can come up with some good stuff. Yeah, yeah, two uh, two heads <laughs> together. Okay, well, listen, I know you got a, a hard hour, so I appreciate your time. Uh, I'll put a link to your work, of course, especially the evictionism argument, which I would really, really recommend people. And uh, your work on the roads also very good. Uh, for those who don't know, I have uh, two free books on my website at freedomain.com, one called Everyday Anarchy, uh, the other one called uh, Practical Anarchy. I hope you will check those out. Uh, the beautiful thing is you don't have to come up with solutions. You only have to have moral principles. Uh, you know, it's like if you ban slavery, you don't have to figure out exactly how everything's going to be picked and how every slave's going to get a job and, and what the world is going to look like 50 years after the end of slavery. You just have to have that same basic moral principle to not initiate the use of force against others. And that way, death paradise lie so thanks a lot i really really appreciate it thanks for everyone for dropping by tonight uh, we'll uh, we'll talk again soon i hope you wanted to put something else in there yeah, one last comment um uh i'm not really an anarchist i believe that the government should compel everyone to read man economy and state <laughs> right or you know start with the haslett thing that the haslett book is i mean that man had a a fluid pen uh, it could dance across the page like a ballerina so i hope that people will check that out. i'll put links to all that stuff below yeah man economy and state is killer and listen there's a lot of uh, audiobook stuff i think jeff R- R- riggenbach has read a bunch of audio stuff from uh, mises from uh, uh from rothbard and so on it's all free and mises.org is a pl- great place to get that kind of stuff throw it on in the background you know like throw it on in the background uh, it will It'll get into your brain uh, and and rewire it uh, in a very, very productive way. So, yeah, thanks a lot. I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks, everyone, for dropping by tonight. Look forward to your feedback. And um, have yourselves a a great evening, uh, evening, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux, and we are all done with this. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye. Thanks for having me. A pleasure always.